Amen. If uh, you have your Bibles, open up to uh, Matthew 24. Uh, we're actually going to be in a couple different passages uh, this morning, so bear with me. If, if it's hard for you to turn different places, you can, you can check me out later. Um, we started a series uh, a while ago based on uh, the idea of hope, and for me, uh, a question kind of comes up from um, 1 Peter 3.15, where Peter says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentle respect. And the assumption here is that we're going to be living in such a way that people are going to come to us and say, why are you facing this differently? Why, why do you see this differently? Why are you reacting differently to these circumstances? And for me, as I look at our lives sometimes as followers of Christ, I don't know that we're achieving that. I don't know that we're living in such a way that people are going, wow, you seem really different. You are reacting really different to these circumstances. And when somebody tells me I should be experiencing something and I'm not experiencing it, I want to find out why I'm not experiencing it. You know, I was trying to remember back when it was, I think it was in the 90s. Remember there, there, was, there were those pictures? You remember those? And they had a bunch of different like squares on them and you were supposed to stare at them. And if you stared at them long enough, some sort of picture was supposed to pop out 3D. And so people would, some of you younger folks got to look this up. And so they, these pictures were everywhere and they're like, you just stare at it and you'll see something. And it used to drive me crazy because I would like stare at it and people are like, do you see it? Do you see it? And, I'm, and after a while you're like, yeah, it's a, it's a boat. No, it's not. It's a horse. And you're just like, I, I just, it just, I, mean, I finally did get, you know, and your eyes are just hurting. But when somebody tells you you're supposed to experience something and you don't experience it, you're like, well, why am I not experiencing that? And here, the Bible says that we're going to be living in such a way that people are going to, like, stop you and say, well, how come you're not freaking out? Well, let me tell you about the hope that I have. And so we've been spending some time talking about this hope so that we understand it. And so when we come into the Christmas season, and especially the idea of peace, if there's one thing that the world, you know, somewhat agrees on is that we we want to somehow achieve world peace. Every beauty queen has declared that's, that's, the, that's the goal, world peace. And so I ask you this morning after the video, how's your shalom? How's your peace, your completeness, your wholeness? And if it was the Messiah that we were waiting for, the Prince of Peace, to bring peace, why aren't we experiencing peace? And so I want to talk about that this morning. And so we're in Matthew chapter 24, and we're just going to look at a section of this discussion, this discourse, this sermon that Jesus is, is, is having with his disciples. And so to put it into context, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem Coming into his final days, Jesus enters Jerusalem on a donkey and people lined the streets and, and hailed him as the Messiah. He marches through and, and people are, are yelling and cheering and they're welcoming this, what they're hoping to be, the Prince of Peace. Now understand, from a Jewish perspective, they're hoping that he is going to take the throne and he's going to overthrow Rome, and they are going to experience as a nation a time of peace against their adversaries. But that's not 
the kind of peace that Jesus is bringing. And he comes in and he's, he is heralded as this Messiah. And it seems towards after that event, he then goes into the temple and overthrows tables. He starts causing uh, a ruckus in the temple. And the disciples are, are, you know, kind of wondering what's all going on. As we come into uh, that Sunday, as we come into Monday, the issue with the fig tree and, and Jesus cursing that. And as we come into Tuesday, Jesus seems to be teaching around the temple again. And in this teaching, the, the Pharisees, are, they, they're just starting to just, they're had it with Jesus. And so they start debating him and they try to ask him questions. Jesus is just crushing it. And so they've had enough, and they've decided that they want to kill Jesus, and so they have this kind of conflict, and as Jesus is leaving, it's as if the disciples are going, this is kind of an awkward situation. I don't know if you've ever been in one of those awkward situations or trying to find something to say, and one of the disciples says, oh, look at the temple, isn't it beautiful? And Jesus says, yeah, not one of these stones will be left unturned. And the disciples are kind of left with this kind of, well, what? And so later that night, as they're sitting up over uh, in, the, in the valley area, probably looking down at Jerusalem and the temple, the disciples come to him and they ask three questions. When is this going to happen? What are the signs of, of the coming of, of the end of the age? And, and, and when is the when is the end? And so they ask these three questions, and Jesus begins this discourse. And in the middle of it, or so, in verse 36, he says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven or the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage and until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be gathering in the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know on what day your Lord's coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have left his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. When we look back at Jesus' first advent, and we think of that manger scene, however you want to picture that. Uh, we began to put out our, well, we completed putting out our Christmas decorations, and those of you who know me, I love the, the nativity scenes, and we have about six of them, and so we're putting them out, however you picture that nativity scene, and the angels, and, and the, the hallelujah core, all these different things going on, there is a, a picture of, here, here it comes. This is what we've been waiting for. Everything's going to be okay. But we're over 2,000 years past that event. In fact, Jesus says to his disciples in Luke um, chapter uh, 12, I, I just want to, you know, I don't want to destroy your picture of Christmas, but 
let me be a downer before I can, you know, kind of build you back up again. He says in, in Luke chapter 12, uh, in the end of that chapter 51, and I'm just going to kind of read around that a little bit. He says in verse 49, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptized to be a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it's accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. In fact, he, he goes on to say his families are going to be divided over this, right? Maybe some of you experienced that over the holidays. Jesus' first advent actually brought division. Why does it bring division? For two reasons. One, as we've been talking about, we live in an upside-down world. If you look at the beginning of the story, everything was the way it was supposed to be. If you look at the end of the story, everything's the way it's supposed to be. But in between Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and the end of Revelation, everything is upside-down. And you and I have lived in it so long, generation after generation after generation, that upside down now begins to look like it's the way it's supposed to be. And it's not. God didn't intend for us to live in such turmoil. And so we live in this upside down world. And in this upside down world, there's two kingdoms at war. And it's pictured right in the story that I told you at the beginning. Jesus comes and he conflicts, not with the, the dredges of society, not the, not the bad dudes, not even Rome. Who does he end up conflicting with? The religious leaders of Jesus' day. The people that everybody looked up to. And, and there's, you're pushing in on our kingdom. And there is a division that happens. And what we see is in the time that we live, there are two kingdoms at war. And I just want to kind of address that a little bit with some big picture things, and then we'll get into the specifics of this passage and one other passage. As we look at the big story of Scripture, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, it says this. Next slide. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Jesus sets up this, God sets up this, this kingdom in uh, the promised land, in a sense, this, this garden temple. And he says, go from here, and go out all over the earth and spread this out. That was the original call. But then sin entered. They get kicked out of the garden. And they begin to spread out, and they stop in Babylon. And instead of going out, they say, let's big a really big building up into the skies. And God's call for us is to go out, not up. And that's where he divides the languages and spreads them out. And I think this is just a common repeating theme. Don't think of Babylon as much of a place, but as an ideal. I'm going to build my own kingdom. It's going to have its own economic system, its own way of thinking. It's going to be apart from God. This is the kingdom that, that God, Jesus is at war with. And even in the New Testament, right, we're called to go make disciples. The picture is to go out. He doesn't say go build churches. 
doesn't say go create a big, you know, nonprofit. He says go make disciples. Go out, not always up. I'm not saying there's something wrong with the church, but it can distract us from what our original mission was, which is to go out and make disciples. We're called to serve, not be served. Next verse. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You know, we often get into this idea of wanting to be served. But we are called to go out and to serve others. And when we start to slip back into that aspect of, you know, somebody should get this for me. Somebody should do this for me. Somebody owes me this. We slip back into another type of kingdom. And then in Hebrews chapter 4, it says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Look, the whole idea that Scripture says we need to strive for peace means that peace is not the default mode. So we are to strive for it. So we, there's these two kingdoms at war. And Jesus encounters them and he says, look, this one kingdom is going to be turned upside down. And, and it's going to be overthrown. And the disciples want to know when. And Jesus doesn't point to his past advent. He points to his next coming. And he says, the next coming is when this stuff is all going to happen. Okay, Jesus, then when is it going to happen? No one knows, not even me. And you, you wish you could go back to the disciples and go, you're asking the wrong question. Let's be more sly about it. Ask them about how much time will pass. Give us, give us a ballpark, Jesus. But, but they don't know. I, I, honestly, the disciples, when they hear that the temple is going to be overturned, they're thinking that's the end. That's it. There must be nothing after that. Right, Jesus? I'm not going to answer. He doesn't, they don't ask the question. And so he says, look, the, the peace is coming, but nobody knows when it will be. And not only does the people not know when it's going to be, but he says some people are going to be caught off guard. And he has this picture of people working. And two people are working and boom, one is taken. Now, there's a lot of debate on the taken part. Are they taken to judgment or are they taken to uh, peace? Which, which one? And the, the argument, whichever way you go, the same is true, right? One is not ready, the other is ready. I think here, taken is to the idea of peace, to the kingdom, and I think that the context shows that. But I also think that if we get too far carried away with that imagery, we miss the fact that Jesus is setting up a kingdom, and that kingdom is to spread out, okay? And if we're just sitting here waiting to get taken up, you know, if you're waiting for your rapture ride up or your point of death, so if you're just living for the end and I'm just going to be out of here, then you miss the point of what it means to go make disciples, to spread the kingdom of God. And so uh, the other part of this that just grabs my attention is that he says um, this idea of the flood, that people will be marrying and they'll be uh, giving people in marriage, right, for dad, I get that point, and they're they're going on, and then it, it, just, it just happens. And so what, or should we not work? Should we not marry? We still have to work. In fact, the things that are listed in this passage and in 
Luke's recording in 17. Eat, drink, marriage, work, protect our home, planting, building. All these things go on. He's not saying we stop doing them. William Hendrickson said this. When the soul becomes entirely wrapped up in them, the eating and the drinking and the marriage and the protecting our home and the planting and the building, so that matters such as these become ends in themselves and spiritual tasks are neglected. They are no longer a blessing, but have become a curse. They have become evidences of gross materialism, false security, and often cold selfishness. Look, even as followers of Christ, we can get too wrapped up in the eating, and the drinking, and the working, and the building, and the planting, so that those things become what we're focused on, that is the up, instead of the relationships, and the people, and the going out, and the serving, and the loving. And we're tempted. Look, it, if you look historically, okay, I've been a Baptist preacher for probably too long, but if you historically, you know, if you want to get a Baptist church excited, what do you do? You got to build something. Look at history. Baptists love to build, right? What are we going to do? Churches, let's build a new building. Oh, yay. There's nothing wrong with, with, with building a church. But when that becomes the end, there's nothing wrong with having a program, but when that becomes the ends, there's nothing wrong with your small group, but when, that, when that's it, right? we, can, we can build anything into an idol, into a means in itself. There's nothing wrong with Thanksgiving or Christmas celebrations, but man, when that's it, when it's not about the people, when it's not about glorifying God, you see how we just instantly kind of drift off. So Jesus calls us to live differently in such a way that people will notice that we are different. What does that look like? Well, in, verses, uh, in verse 42, he says, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. And then in verse 44, he says, Therefore, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. What does it mean to stay awake? I'll just be, I am not a, I used to be in my youth. I, nighttime was a wonderful time. Um, now, nighttime, I, I define it totally different. Okay. Um, I don't remember the last time when I saw midnight. It, it was, it's been few, it's fewer and fewer and far between, okay? My kids joke about my bedtime, so I know that's not a, you know, I'm getting old, right? It's when they start making jokes about that. So he's not just, he's not saying that we literally stay awake, right? We'd all be in a lot of trouble. So what is he saying? It's a call to be aware of the coming judgment and rescue at the coming of our Lord. Two guys are in the field. One is aware that the end is coming and is prepared for it. The other is not. He's awake. 
Two women are working at the mill. One is aware of what's coming. She's prepared for it. The other has not. You have to understand and live in such a way as you understand that Christ's coming could be today. That we may not go to sleep tonight. That Jesus may return before the day is over. Please, Lord, yes. And if that's the case, I can say, I can say please, your yes, Lord, right? I, that, that sounds great. But some of you might be going, well, maybe I'm not ready for that. I'm not so sure. You know what? The Lord may not come today. I opened up my Facebook this morning, got to check and make sure that, you know, none of you are in the hospital and I find more about Facebook than I do anything else. And a girl that I went to high school with died in her sleep last night. My age, her kids didn't know what was up. She died. That's it. I hope that she was ready. I know that she had heard the gospel. But you understand, like, I know that we all think we're going to live to be 110. But there is a point in where you don't know when either the Lord is going to return or he's going to call you home. Do you live in such a way as that you are prepared for that? You are aware. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is one of those passages that really make me think. And he says in that, and I'll just uh, kind of back up a little bit. Verse 8, yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. This is what we're talking about. Come back, Lord. Let's, let's, this is Paul said. This, we'd rather have that. So whether you're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Amen? That's how we're supposed to live. And then Paul kind of drops this little bit of a bomb. He says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And just so you know, he's talking to believers here because he's just talked about being away or not away and home and how we, well, he's not talking about non-believers here. So wait a second, I thought I became a Christian so I didn't have to be judged. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Even in Christ, there's, there's still a, a point of, of how we're living this life. Are, are we ready? Do you, I mean, I don't think any of us want to make that stand right now. So are we living as people that are ready for that? I don't think that's a salvation judgment. It's a life reckoning. Second, so stay awake. Second, be ready. It's a call to be prepared for the coming of our Lord. Are we ready for it? And, uh, you know, we think about, when we think of the rapture, we think of whatever that is, the coming, or however you see end times, you know, some of you are, believe that Jesus is coming in a rapture, you're pre-mill or you're post-mill, and some of you are ah-mill, and some of you just are pan-millennial. You know what pan-millennial is? It's all pan out in the end. So whatever your end-time belief is, right, God's going to do what he's going to do, but there is a, a, a second advent, and we need to be ready for that. And in First uh, John, it talks about those who, who shrink away at his coming. The idea is that we, we get to that point and, and, and here it is, oh, wait a second, I don't think I'm quite ready for that. 
in that moment that Jesus calls you home, are you ready? And as a pastor, I've sat by a number of bedsides. And some focused on, I get to just, I might get to see Jesus today. And I just can't wait to look in his face. And I'm telling you, I've also sat next to bedsides where people are saying, I might see Jesus today. And I'm not sure if I'm ready to look at his face. So are you ready? Are you awake, aware that it's going to happen? Are you ready to make that, that stand? Now, looking at that passage, it, it also leads us to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And so if you can turn there as Paul addresses the same issue, and we're going to look at a few more things that Jesus calls us to do in light of his second advent, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And Paul writes, now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Again, he says we don't know when it's going to happen. Some people will be caught off guard. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come on them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for, the day, uh, for that day to surprise your, your, you like a thief. For you are all children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night, and some of them during the day. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet of hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the other thing that, that Jesus calls us to is, is to live in the light. The idea here, he makes a separation between the way people live in light and the way that people live in darkness. And the idea here is purity. In other words, you are to be living a life that is so different than the world that they are going to ask why you are living a different life. Now, it's not a life of shaking your finger. Some of us have become really good at that. It's not a life of pointing things out. It's a life of living in such a way that practically people can see your faith and your hope, and your love. You're living like Jesus were right here. There's an old poem, and I, I printed it out and forgot to, to bring it this morning. Some of you remember it. The, the old po poem was, if Jesus came to your house to, to stay a day or two, the author's unknown. You can find it on the internet. I mean, the poem goes, I'm sure you'd greet him at the door. I'm sure you'd give him the finest meal. I'm sure you'd give him the best seat. But I wonder, the poem asks, if Jesus really came to your house, would you have to hide some magazines real quick, put the Bible where it used to be? Would you put your music away? This was before internet and all that kind of stuff, and iPhones, would you, and put a hymnal out? Some of you had hymnals at your homes back the day. Would you, would you mix, would you have to change things up a little bit? And then how long would you like Jesus to stay? I mean, would it interrupt your way of doing things so much that when he was leaving, you'd be like going, Whew. glad that's over. 
I mean, are we living so different than the way Jesus wants us to live that if he came and he was our house guest for the weekend, that it would be awkward? And if we have to answer yes to any of that, if what we eat would be different, if what we drink would be different, if what we watched on TV would be different, if what we read would be different, if what we listened to would be different, the way that we talk to one another, if all that would be different, then we might need to ask some questions of why. Because I have news for you, followers of Jesus. Jesus was at your house this weekend. There's nothing that went on in your house. Conversations, whether they were, you know, there's the conversations you have at the dinner table, and there's the conversations you have kind of in the kitchen. She's driving me crazy. Jesus was a part of both those conversations. He was sitting right there going, what are you going to do about it? This isn't working. Right, so the point is, are we living lives of purity or are we living in the darkness? Live sober lives. He's not just talking here about drinking or not drinking. It's a call to clear thinking about the coming of our Lord. Again, it's not a a panic of his coming. Um, I'm going to see 1 John uh, 2, um, 28. And now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. You just, you hear those words? Abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Live sober lives. It's a clear thinking about the coming of the Lord. If Jesus, if you knew, and now we we don't play that game, some churches do, if you knew Jesus was coming, if this was the, would you live any differently? And if you would, then why don't you live differently? That's that's the question. As as your pastor, honestly, one of the things that's not on the job description that you gave me, but I'm just telling you from a biblical point of view, on my job description is to prepare you for death. Spiritually. Emotionally. Morally, are you ready? And some in this church I've sat next to and we've watched them enter into. For some of you, it might be, I'm I'm not trying to be a downer, I'm just saying (laughs) history shows First Baptist Church that somebody this year too, this coming year, will pass into eternity. Are we ready? Do we have clear thinking about it? Is there anybody we need to go reconcile with? Is there a relationship we need to restore? Is there an ask? Do we need to go ask somebody forgiveness? Do we we need to kind of fix that whatever, attitude or thought ways of doing things that maybe we haven't dealt with? Are we really being sober about the truth? It was interesting to me here that Paul kind of mentions the armor of God in passing. 
uh, in verse 8. Um, For since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Having put on the breastplate, here he says, of faith and love, and the helmet, the hope of salvation. Some of you will remember Paul's discussion of the, the armor of God that he goes into depth in Ephesians. But really, he takes these imageries from the book of Isaiah when it's talking about the coming Messiah. And what he is saying is this, is, this is what the coming Messiah was to look like. We have Christ in us. This is what we are to look like. You can look at Isaiah 59 and, and other passages that just really describe this, this picture. And I think of, when I think of this faith and love or or the breastplate of righteousness, and the helmets of salvation. It's to protect our heart, right? You, you wear this breastplate to protect our heart. And church, just listen to this. If you, if you miss everything else, I, I'd really like to invite you as followers of Christ to make sure that in the midst of all that's going on in our world and all that's going on, maybe in your families, that you protect your heart, that you don't become a bitter, angry people, that you don't live in such a way as that you don't really have any hope because we know who's in charge. Scriptures point us to Jesus Christ. And so this, this hope and this faith and this love, it protects our heart. And I know that some of you sometimes are sitting around going, I just want somebody to love me. I want somebody to treat me that way. And what, what the scripture is saying is, look, God has already loved you, therefore go out and love other people. Like, go do it. It's also, in a way, protecting our hands. When I think of love, I think of the way that we're physically showing love to other people. And we've used these phrases in our discipleship. How is it that we are to disciple people? We are helping mold their heart, their hands, and their head. The way they think, right? The way that they they love and have passion, the heart, and what they actually do. And this breastplate of righteousness and this helmet of salvation, when he's saying put on the armor of God, it's a, it's a call to protect and fight until the coming of the Lord. It's, it's, a, it's a place of what we think and what we do. The Christians should never be the ones that are huddled up in the corner. And historically, people have said the Lord is coming next month and people have sold everything and walked up into a hill and waited for it. That's not what the Bible calls us to do. It calls us to keep going till the very end. And he says in verse 11, and this, as he's concluding this, he says, therefore encourage one another, build one another up just as you are doing. Encourage one another. It's a call to remind each other to wait in the hope until the coming of the Lord. If, if someone is around you and they're, they're starting to get tired, if they're starting to struggle, it's our job as a church to encourage them. And so we talked about last week that part of this whole process is, is coming to, to worship on a regular basis so that we can encourage one another, right? We, we're, we're tempted to not do that, where things come in the way of that, whether it's sickness or life situations, but as a whole, we, should, we need to be together and encourage one another. Not because this is the end, right? Not because if you go to church, you get to check it off and Jesus is happy with you, but this is because we get, we get filled up so we can get sent out. So we encourage one another, we build one another up. It's a call to serve one another as we wait for the coming of our Lord. So Jesus says, look, I can't tell you 
when the time is. I don't even know. I can tell you that when it comes, people are going to be surprised. When it comes, some people are going to be ready and other people are not going to be ready. And I, I love the, the illustration Jesus gave. Look, if you knew what time your house was going to be robbed, right? We live in a society where all sorts of things are scheduled. That, we haven't gotten to that point yet. I'm calling to let you know, you're going to be robbing your house between two and three. It's good to know I might stay awake. Okay, I might make it past midnight if I knew that were the case. Wouldn't go on a trip, right? I, I, would, I would schedule that. I'd put that in my phone, and I'd make sure that I get up at the right. That doesn't happen. You don't get to live with a schedule of going, this is going to be my end of my time, or this is going to be when the Lord is coming. We don't live in that way. You don't know when it's coming. Therefore, church, stay awake. Understand that it's been a long time, but it could happen today. Be sober-minded in your thinking. Live pure lives so you're not shrinking away when he's coming. Love and encourage other people. Be about the business that Jesus has set you on. So what is the application and action for this week? The thought of the second coming should produce peace, not panic. Jesus isn't saying these things. He says, look, you guys already live, I already said this, you, you already live in a place where there is a war going on. You don't have to fear the second coming if you are in Christ because your sins have been forgiven by the blood of the Lamb and you are in the kingdom. You don't have to live in a panic. You know, I have conversations with people and, you know, I was a youth pastor for a number of years, and I've always joked that I would ask the kids, what do you guys want to talk about? You know, what do you, what do you want the next? And there was, they would, uh, sex and dating. All right, do a series on sex and dating. So what do you guys want to talk about now? End times. All right, we'll do a series on end times. What do you guys want to talk about now? Sex and dating. It's like it was, okay, we got to cut this off. Like these, these are like the two things. I finally realized later that they were really one, like, when is Christ coming because I'm more interested in sex and dating? Like, how much time do I have? And it, it, it took me a while to really get there, but I, I figured it out. Look, the idea of Christ's second coming should not be a panic point. It shouldn't be, well, I want to get to do all the things I want to do. Because we have hope in something that is far better that is coming. Nothing in this world can compare to it. It should produce in us love, not selfishness. If we know that this isn't the end, that if we're just passing through, that if we're strangers and aliens in this world, as Hebrews calls us, and as we've been reading in our, in our devotion times in, in Hebrews and James, if that's the case, then it should lead us to love other people because we know, you know, we've got something better. And I wonder if, Sometimes we're tempted to say, well, I've got that, so I'm also going to get all I can right now. And that's not the heart of the gospel. It's not the heart of what we're looking forward to. So we should be leaving in love and, and not selfishness. And finally, we should move out, not up. It shouldn't be about building our own kingdom. And I think, you know, we're all tempted to do that to one point in time. It's really popular today to, to ask people, what's your legacy? What legacy do you want to leave? And 
this way, I, I, God kind of says, you know, you're pretty much going to live and then you'll go back to the dust and no one's going to remember you. You know, maybe you get your name on a plaque somewhere in the church and somebody can still point to it. Maybe somebody will do a little victory lap for you. Hopefully your kids will remember you in a positive way, but after a few generations, right? I'm going to forget that. We're not building a legacy for ourselves. We are a part of the kingdom of God, and we are loving and serving other people until Christ comes. We have a hope beyond anything else. And we should live in that hope in such a way that people go, you're kind of different. And if they're not asking that, maybe we need to press ourselves a little bit in that area. Really make sure that we're sober-minded. If you're here this morning and the idea of the second coming, that Jesus would return, if that is something that terrifies you, I would ask two questions. Are you personally ready for his return? That is, have you received him as your Lord and Savior? The Bible says if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. Have you done that? Have you entered into a relationship with him? And then second, I would ask if, if you've done that and you're still terrified, what needs to change in your life? Maybe you need to move your hope from certain things in this world back to where it should be solely on the person of Jesus Christ. Maybe it's time to give up a few things so that you can show love to others. You know, we, we invest for our retirement. Maybe we need to invest a little bit more in our internal retirement, in our forever home. And so I, I would just kind of wrestle with those two questions. So I end where I started. How's your shalom? Is there peace and wholeness? And if there's not, then let's, let's reconcile that. Before you leave, if you need to talk to somebody about what it means to become a follower of Jesus Christ, myself or, or uh, Pastor Rich or many people would just love to talk to you about that. If you're here and you're going, man, I, I, I did that, but I'm, I'm not walking with the Lord. There's not peace and shalom in my life, and I need to enter into a discipleship relationship so I'm growing, then Let's talk about that too. The Advent is a reminder of peace this morning. And if it's not a reminder of peace, then make sure you know where to find it. Let's pray. Father, thanks for this morning. Uh, thanks for uh, celebrations that have been happening uh, this past week and, and will continue to happen as we remember your first coming. But as a church, may we live in light of your second coming, that we might not shrink away, uh, that we might live with confidence, sober-minded. And so I pray for us as a church and as individuals, I pray that if you're tugging on the heart of anyone here, that they would have the confidence to come and, and ask what it means to follow Jesus, uh, that they would move into a relationship with you. If there are those that are here this morning that, that are not walking with you as the way they should, that they would find somebody to help them to follow what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And God, we just pray that we would be real and honest about where we are and where we're headed. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.